Good morning, everyone. Hey, let's take our Bibles and take a look at Matthew 2. And I want you to do this. Will you stand with me, please, as we pray and ask God to um, meet with us in our time around the Word. Let's pray. Father, we um, are thankful today that we have the privilege of being in your house and receiving your word with gladness. And we pray that um, our hearts this very moment would be open to what you want to say. We want to clear away right now all of the clutter of this day and of this week that would in any way um, hinder us from receiving, Lord, what you want to say to our hearts. And I pray especially Um, Lord, for those individuals who you are in the process of seeking and drawing them to your heart, that today might be the day where your pursuit of them stops, not because you stop pursuing them, but because finally they have been found. And so we pray that you would use your word and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we're in the uh, study of this book of Matthew, and uh, a couple weeks ago I shared with you that the theme of Matthew is this, that Jesus is the Messiah sent to bring the kingdom of God to the entire world. And we saw from the beginning that the genealogy of Jesus was the way that he started out in the um, in, in, in the, uh, the book of, of, of Matthew, and then we saw that then at the end he ends with the Great Commission, the way in which he says... All authority and power has been given to me, and therefore go into all the nations. So what Matthew's aim is to help us understand that this is Jesus, the Messiah, and the the point of this entire book is that Matthew wants us to see that this message, that he's the one, is to be brought to the entire world. Now he moves rather interestingly from this issue of Jesus' genealogy to the, the matter of him being born, and then he picks up this story of the wise men. The wise men. It's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't mention the shepherds. He doesn't mention the circumcision and the naming of Jesus. He doesn't mention his presentation um, in the temple. He doesn't mention the encounter with Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees later. The only thing that Matthew mentions in this book is the story of the wise men. And i got to tell you, this story is here not just so we could have nice Christmas carols. Remember that one? We three kings of Orient are, right? Well, first of all, we don't know if there were just three. And Orient is kind of a hard thing to understand anyways. And and i got news for you. Most pastors don't like trying to speak during Christmas because basically the texts are all the same. And, and so this text is only really used at Christmas time. And you know what? That's kind of sad. Because there's a particular reason why this passage is here. Why the story of the wise men is in this particular account in Matthew. And today what we're going to look at is try to figure out why does he tell us about the wise men and what exactly is he trying to accomplish with this particular story. So again, the point is, is he's the Messiah, his birth is miraculous, and then we have this question of why do we have this issue of the wise men here. So what we're going to do today is we're going to walk you through the specifics of this narrative and uh, then secondly examine what is the purpose for this particular text in terms of what Matthew wants us to see and to know. So why Herod and the wise men? What is the purpose of Herod, the king, and the wise men in this text? Well, let's try and figure this out. The first thing that we see is this idea of his paranoia and his worship. Chapter 2 begins with the birth of Jesus, and the the text tells us what was going on. Look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, 
wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Fellas, can I get that monitor on please? Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? So what we have happened here is that Matthew tells us that at the very beginning, we have this sense of Herod the king and the wise men. So you need to know a little bit about who Herod the king is. Herod the king is a ruler who was neither Jewish nor safe. (laughs) Herod was a curious man. He was um, an Idumean and an Arabian, so he wasn't Jewish, and he was considered really a Roman lackey. He was put into power by the Roman government. You've got to understand that in the days of Jesus, the area of Palestine was, a, was an outpost, a, a kind of a no-man's land, a place that if you're a Roman soldier, you did not want to be assigned to. And what happened is that Herod uh, rose to power in the region of Galilee, and he became pretty um, successful, successful at keeping things quiet. And Rome liked people who could keep things under control. Herod was a cunning politician. He was a, a shrewd diplomat. He was loyal to Rome, and he was able to squelch the people when, when they sort of got uneasy with extreme violence and was able to keep things under control. And so Rome loved him for that. And so after a while, they appointed him to be king of Judea. So he got a promotion from being the governor of Galilee to being the king over all Judea. William Barclay, a historian about um, this region, says this, that Herod was the only ruler of Palestine who ever succeeded in keeping the peace and in bringing order into disorder. He was the only one who could actually make things quiet. He was called Herod the Great because he was known for some amazing accomplishments. He was a great builder. He, he built the, uh, the temple that Jesus worshipped in. It took 46 years to build that temple. He built uh, compounds like the Herodian and Masada, uh, places that he would uh, run to in case of being attacked. And when you watch the news, even today, and you see Jews in Jerusalem, and they're praying at the Wailing Wall, that wall was built by Herod the Great. So he was an amazing person in terms of his brilliance, his, his strategy, and also his ability to keep the peace. But yet Herod was a man who was paranoid. He was suspicious and power hungry. Since he called himself the king of the Jews and he wasn't the king of the Jews, he was always looking behind him to see if someone was coming up who would try and usurp his authority. And it's interesting that Herod particularly was suspicious of his own family. He killed three of his own sons because he believed that they were a threat to his throne. His, the environment around his, uh, his, his family and the throne was one of perpetual suspicion and intrigue. In fact, so much so that the Romans said this about Herod. It is safer to be Herod's sow than Herod's son. <laughs> He's a bloodthirsty man. In, in fact, at the end of his life, he, he wanted to be sure that the entire nation would mourn his death. And so he gave orders that upon his death, that every member... Every family should have one person in their family killed so that the entire nation would mourn when he died. Gratefully, when he died, his uh, soldiers refused to carry out that edict. So you get the sense of the kind of guy that Herod was. He was brilliant, master planner, strategic guy who could build all sorts of, of wonderful community projects. And at the same time, he was a deeply suspicious, paranoid man. This is Herod the Great. So when Matthew says, in the days of Herod... You need to understand the context in which Jesus was born. Now, we also see that they have wise men. The wise men or the magi were from the east, likely from the countries of Arabia, Babylon, or Persia. Now, the word magi is not a word that 
um, usually engendered a lot of love in Israel. Magi were the sorcerers. They were the astrologers. They weren't scientists. They were star worshippers. They're the kind of people that looked at crystals to determine your future. Palm readers, so to speak. Uh, Shirley MacLaine kind of folks in our modern day. These were folks that people looked at with kind of like, yeah, whatever. But yet, for some reason, God uses these magi, these wise men, these stargazers, to say something about his son. Why does he put this story in here? What we learn is that these wise men came somewhere from the east, and what happens is they saw a star. Somehow they, they, they were studying the heavens, and they saw this star, and they believed that this star indicated that a king had been born. It may have been that they were studying the uh, ancient scriptures like in Numbers 24 because men in, in, um, in, in the regions of Arabia, Babylon, or Persia were studying scriptures like this. Numbers 24, 17, for instance, says, A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise of Israel. So they may have studied that particular passage, saw the star and drawn the conclusion. We don't know exactly how they figured it out, but their intentions were clear. They came to Jerusalem and said, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Why did they come to Jerusalem? Well, they came to Jerusalem because it was the capital city. So they, they came to the capital and they began talking with people saying, Hey, we saw this star. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? And pretty soon people are talking. you got these, these magi that have come in. They're talking about a star. They're asking about oh, who's been born king of the Jews. And the city starts to get into a, a little bit of a frenzy over the fact that these men are here asking these questions. In fact, the text tells us that Herod was troubled by it. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. That word troubled means to be anxious, to be nervous, or to be fearful. Notice that it says Herod was troubled and all the city with him. Why? Because they knew when Herod starts to get freaked out, it causes us problems. That's why. They knew that when Herod gets troubled, the whole city feels the effects. So you got these wise men who come into the city and start talking about the king of the Jews, and Herod begins to get nervous, thinking, oh, there's somebody who's going to be a threat to my throne. So what does Herod do? Look at what happens. Verse 4. He assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. So he called for an emergency session with all the people who knew their scriptures, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he called these people in and said, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And amazingly, they know. They they tell him. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written, and they quoted Micah 5.2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Very interesting here. And note this. The religious leaders know exactly where the Messiah is going to be born. They tell Herod, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's what the prophecy says. So just think about it a moment. You're a scribe. You've been studying the the, the scriptures all your life. You know the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Then three guys from the east come and say, we saw a star in the sky. And where is the one born king of the Jews? Herod the Great calls you into his, his throne and says, where is the Messiah to be born? And they tell him, but guess what? Nothing more is said about these religious leaders. They just fade off into the background. They didn't even go and look. They didn't travel six miles to the south to go and see. It's almost as though they didn't care. It's almost as though they knew where he was to be born, but they just really didn't do anything with it. Mark that down, because we'll come back to that in a moment. Well, Herod secretly then calls for the, the Magi to come and visit him. 
And he asks them to, uh, to, to um, be a part of a conversation regarding this king of the Jews. Verse 7, it says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And then notice, and Herod sent them to Bethlehem. He sent them to Bethlehem. So they came to the city of Jerusalem. They didn't know where to go. Herod tells them the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And then you get a sense of his cunning diplomacy, his sinister planning. Look at what he says in verse 8. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Hmm. So Herod instructs the, the Magi, when you find him, go, tell me word, and then I'll come and worship him as well. And so the Magi go towards Bethlehem. And the text tells us that as they are on their way, the star reappears. Verse 9 tells us that. It tells us that as they listened to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So the star disappears and then whoop, it reappears and they're thrilled exceedingly with great joy. You get the sense that these guys are celebrating as they're making their way to Bethlehem. There it is and it rests over this particular house. The text then tells us that they find the Christ child. Look at um, verse 10. It says, And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with great joy. And going into the house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they, they fell down and worshipped him. That, that word means that they went from an upright position and they got on their face. Now, I just want you to imagine, I'm going to demonstrate what this looks like because we don't capture it fully when we just talk about the words. It means that they literally, as they came into the house, they got on their face. Here's what it would have looked like. The door open, they walk in, they see the Christ child, and their action was this. They see him down, 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 and they're worshiping him. They see the Christ child, and the minute they see him, they're on their knees and they fall down. Can I just remind you that this is the position of worship that every knee will take one day when Jesus is declared as to who he really is? One day all kings, all authorities, all people at the sight of him will fall on their face. And can I remind you that the Lord's Day is supposed to be a weekly reminder that we are to fall on our face. The sense of who you are in light of who I am means I get down. And that's what these kings do. And as they're down there, they open up their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it's this beautiful picture of these kings, these wise men, these star worshipers. And they come and they see the king of the Jews. And in reverence and humility before him, they fall down and pay homage to him. It's a beautiful scene. But what does Matthew want us to see here? What's his point in having this story? Why not talk about the shepherds? Why not talk about the naming of Jesus? What is it that Matthew is trying to drive at? Well, before we answer that, look what happens next in verse 12. We have a shift. God intervenes and tells the Magi not to return. Look at verse 12. Being warned in a dream to not return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he tells him, look what he says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. So in the middle of the night, God appears to Joseph, tells him, Get out of here, and run to Egypt. And so Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt. Now just think about that for a moment. Here we have Mary and Joseph in the city of Bethlehem. They've been told that Jesus will be the Christ, the one who will save people from their sins. And within a short period of time, they're now on the run to Egypt. That doesn't fit the plan, does it? And and here we have God intervening and saving the life of his son, but sending his son to an area of the world that doesn't... How is this all going to work out? Well... Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1 says that out of Egypt I will call my son. Verse 14 says he rose, took the child and his mother and left by night to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. So Matthew wants us to see here that this trip to Egypt is a part of God's fulfilling this beautiful redemptive story that began all the way in the land of Egypt. Remember Egypt? The bondage of Israel, it was the defining mark of the people of Israel. When God gave them the Ten Commandments, He said this, I am the Lord your God who, what? Brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And what Matthew is doing is linking Christ to this redemptive event in the life of Israel. Everything about Israel was connected to their being delivered out of Egypt. That he took his son out of Egypt, the nation of Israel, and now he's showing them that this Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was promised. And that Passover lamb thing that they did, well, a few chapters on, you're going to see that Jesus becomes the ultimate Passover lamb. And what Matthew is doing is connecting all of the things that are happening in the Old Testament to the person and work of Jesus. He's showing us that this trip to Egypt is not just a blip on the radar, a little corner that you're taking or turning the road, but rather this is intricately a part of God showing his beautiful plan rooted in Egypt and now fulfilled in his son. The text goes on. There's more here. We find that verse 16 reveals the depth of Herod's desperation. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under. I mean, just think of that for a moment, will you? He dispatches a group of mercenaries to ride six miles south to Jerusalem. And there, house by house, they drag families out. And whoever has a two-year-old male child, it's slaughtered right there in the streets. Can you imagine the news that spread over Israel? Historians estimate it may have been as high as 300 two-year-old boys were killed in this. It's no wonder when Herod was troubled, the nation was troubled. Can you imagine the thought process, the, the kind of paranoia that went into this man having this kind of slaughter? And then the Bible tells us next that this was also a part of being this this fulfillment of the past. Verse 17, Then was fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This reference is a reference to the Babylonian captivity. So the first reference was about Egypt. The second one now is about the Babylonian captivity. This was the time when Israel sinned against God. He sent the Babylonian Empire. They they decimated the land of Israel and took people captive and brought them back to their own land. Babylon, the modern-day Iraq. And it's from this uh, situation in Babylon that Jeremiah 31 is written. 
And the context of it is beautiful. Here's the rest of the passage. It says this, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. It's in the book of Jeremiah that we hear about the new covenant. This day when God will take the heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. When He'll take all the things that we learn and He'll put His Spirit inside of us. There will be a day when we will be called His Son and He will be our God and we will be His children. And all of that was promised in the book of Jeremiah. And what Matthew is showing us here is that the weeping and wailing in Ramah is the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ. That He not only is the one who was promised to deliver, He's the one who's the promise in order to restore. And what Matthew is doing is weaving together these Old Testament fulfillment prophecies under the landscape and the frame of the wise men and Herod in order to tell us some wonderful and powerful things about this person that we know as Jesus. And so our section then ends with verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, in the place of his father, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Here's the last fulfillment passage, and that is that the Old Testament prophets talked about the fact that Jesus would be a Nazarene. What does it mean to be a Nazarene? Nazarene means that you are low, you are humiliated, you are despised. In John chapter 1 and verse 46, Philip one day heard that Jesus was coming, that they had found the Messiah, and he said this, Could anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was the throwaway city. A town you always wanted to be from. A town that nothing ever good came out of it. Anybody from Gary, Indiana here today? That's good. When I was a kid growing up, honestly, my parents called Gary, Indiana the armpit of America. I did a little Google search, by the way. I said, where is the armpit of America? And it's interesting, Gary wins the, the, you know, wins the votes as far as number one, but Cleveland's up there. Anybody from Cleveland? Um, and uh, also from the whole state of New Jersey, by the way, is on there as well. I don't know why. <laughs> the, the point is, is there's certain regions in the country where you don't want to be known that you live there because it's like the place that you want to forget about in your past. Well, Nazareth was that kind of place. So put it all together. you got Jesus, who's the son that's been pulled out of Egypt. You've got this son who's the fulfillment of the restoration of Israel. And you've got this idea of him coming from Nazareth, this city that's low and despised and the least of all. Isn't it wonderful to know that the one who fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies was from the city that everyone looked at and said, there's nothing good coming out of that town. Because that means when people look at your family and say, yeah, good luck with that. Or your past, good luck with that. Or look to your future, doesn't look real bright. The reality is God is the wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful restorer of everything that's broken. He's able to take things that are lowly and despised that other people would say, there's nothing good going to happen with you. And God has an amazing ability to take us and transform us by the beauty of his grace for his own glory. So Jesus is the son called out of Egypt. He's from 
He's the fulfillment of all of the things talked about of being restored in the Old Testament. And he comes from the city of Nazareth. So Matthew puts all this together for us to see that, that God is, is, is putting together this beautiful picture of who his son is. He's putting together this, this wonderful fabric of what it means for Christ to be the fulfillment of everything that's promised. All of this for us to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's been sent to bring God's kingdom to the world. So, again... Why the wise men? Why Herod the king? Why talk about this Matthew? Let me give you three reasons that I think that this is here for our benefit and why Matthew is pulling this all together. All this detail for what reasons? Here it is. Number one is this. It's to show us that God is unstoppable. Hear me. He is in control, always a step ahead, even when we don't see it. Plan B happens. Right? You're in Bethlehem, your son's called the king of the Jews, and bang, you're down to Egypt. You ever had this thought? This doesn't fit the plan. Then you're down in Egypt, and he says, come back, and yet there's a ruling king that's going to kill your son. So you move up to Nazareth, the loser city. This is not the track for winning. And yet God is absolutely in control. All of it's working according to his plan. We get to see it, but Mary and Joseph couldn't see it. And there's times and seasons in our life where we don't see how everything's going to fit, but it does fit. We just don't see how. And what Matthew reminds us here in the story of the wise men, that God is unstoppable. Kings like Herod or rulers or nations or even Satan himself cannot stop a sovereign, supreme God from doing his work. If I had to choose one word over this text, it would be this word, supreme. Some of you, the only reason you know that word is because of pizza. You need to put it in your Bible. It's supreme. It means over all. God is the highest in authority, in power, and glory. History, hear me, is His story. It's the record of His plan being worked out. Matthew shows us that everything that takes place in the life of Jesus is a part of His master plan. God was never late. He was never confused. He was never worried. He was never afraid. He was never anything but supreme. And Matthew tells us that no one can challenge his authority. Earthly kings like Herod, as wicked as they are, as debiacal as the things that they do, or as powerful as they are, are laughable to him. They're nothing in his sight. Look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. Here's how we say this in present day. Our nation isn't a Christian nation anymore. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the answer, verse 4, He who sits in heaven laughs. He laughs at them. He holds them in derision. This is the verse that's important when you think the whole world is falling apart. Or kings, that you they assert their authority and they try and somehow squelch the work of God in the world. The Bible says God looks in the heavens and laughs. So what kind of laugh does God have in this respect? Does He laugh because He thinks it's funny? You know why He laughs? He laughs because our efforts and the efforts of people who think they're strong are ridiculous. It's a laugh that sounds like this. <laughs> Whenever I hear that laugh, I think of this little girl. Her name was Janiah. And she lived in her home for about uh, three, about two months. 
uh, we were foster parents in Michigan, and a wonderful little girl had two other sisters that lived with us. She was African-American, and uh, we just loved Janiah to death. And when she first came to our house, the very first night, we're trying to get her to know her a little bit. We're eating a bowl of cereal, and, and, um, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the conversation, she says, I can dance. I said, you can. She said, I can. She keeps eating her cereal. I said, well, let's see you. No, no, I'm not going to dance. And of course, you know, she's putting on stuff. I said, go, oh, come on, Janiah, let's, let's, let's see you dance. She said, no, no, no. So I said, all right. So I turned some music on. I said, then I'll dance. So I turned some music on. I'm doing like this, you know, <laughs> snapping my fingers, just kind of going the house like this, just snapping away, snapping away. And she looks at me and she goes, <laughs> she said, quote, you ain't dancing. You just snap on your fingers. <laughs> And that's it. It's a It's You're despicable. And the Bible tells us God looks at our greatest inventions, the, the strongest armies, the most brilliant leaders, the most strong nations, and He laughs. He laughs. Listen to the next one. Oops, wrong way. Isaiah 40. Behold the nations, look at, are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. It means that, the, listen, the United States of America is like a drop in the bucket to God. And the point is, is that the, the, the unbelievable power, the supremacy of God is at work even when you don't know how it's going to turn out. There's no ruler, no government, no person, no problem that is beyond his reach. Listen, even the cross, the death of his son, even the schemes of Satan play into his plans. This is really important to know when your story is still being written and you can't see how all the pieces fit together. I call this the dark side of the will of God. You ever been there? Some of you are there. And I just want to tell you that when you're on the dark side of the will of God, one day it's going to be clear. It may not be till you see Him face to face, but one day it will be clear. But until that day, you need to simply rest and remember that He is in control. Sixteen years ago, I was in Togo, West Africa. My wife and I were planning to do a two-year short-term missions trip to that country. So this week has been a trip kind of down memory lane. And you know, when the Lord closed the door for us to do that for a number of reasons, I really wrestled with, God, what in the world are you doing? What is it? Did you make a mistake? Did I make a mistake? How did this happen? And that's where I coined the phrase, the dark side of the will of God. And you know what's important to remember during those seasons? And I was reminded of this on this trip, that God is always working His plans, and I don't always see how it's going to work out, but I can still trust Him. And even when evil men do evil things or bad people do their worst, God is still working His plan. And even when the enemy has small little victories, and I think, ah, what's happening now? God doesn't look at it and say, I don't know what to do. It's all according to his plan. And one day he will say, that's it, that's enough, the devil, it's over, now all things new. And all of that began with the work of Christ. Psalm 9 says this, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will account of your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Some of you need to live in this passage. 
The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion and tell among the peoples his deeds. What Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus is the one, the Son of the Supreme God, who's always in control. The second thing is this. It's remarkable. Matthew tells us that Jesus is to be worshipped by all people. Matthew is the only New Testament writer that tells us about the Magi. He tells us about these stargazers, these astrologers, these mystics, these, these people who are not highly esteemed in God's economy. They're outsiders, they're pagans, they're, they're, they're sinful people, and yet here they are, on their knees, worshiping Jesus. There is something really beautiful when people worship Jesus who have really messed up lives. And I just want to remind you that if you've got a past that's a mile long, or a, a record from your history that's really sordid, I want to remind you that everybody has a record, and that Jesus is to be worshipped by all people. And it is a sign of God's grace that He uses these, these foreign mystics to declare the news of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It reminds me how beautiful God's grace is. Look at Ephesians 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What you're going to find in the book of Matthew is that over and over, he tells us about the beautiful way that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That He comes not to heal those who are healthy, He comes to heal those who are sick. And so if you've come on this Lord's Day full of all sorts of guilt and pain, and think, how in the world could I possibly ever be forgiven? I've got news for you. The Gospel, Jesus saving sinners, is the heart of what Matthew wants to know, and it's the way today that you too could come and worship Him. Everyone, he says, will worship Him. Jesus is to be worshipped by all people. It also means that one day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. The difference, though, at that time and the fulfillment of that verse will be whether or not Jesus is confessed as Lord or whether or not He's confessed as judge. But Jesus, Mark, will be worshipped by all people. The third and last one is this. And this, to me, is the most telling. I think the reason that Matthew has this is to show us that Jesus is opposed by those who are threatened by Him. He's opposed both actively or passively. John 1 tells us that He came into His own, but His own people did not receive Him. You know what? Jesus threatens the comfort zone of people's lives. Herod's power was threatened, and so he tried to kill him. So the minute that Jesus is inserted into the world, powerful people want to kill him. Why? Because this king of the Jews is going to threaten Herod's comfort zone. And that's still what Jesus does today. He threatens people's comfort zones. 
The Bible tells us that, that the word about Christ is a stumbling block to people. It's an offense. Why is it offensive? Because in order to understand who Jesus is, you have to know that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, that you can't self-justify. You can't make it right between you and God on your own. And for many people, that is threatening. In fact, I would argue for all people that's threatening. That the way to come to Christ is by getting on one's knees and confessing that you need help. And I have to believe... I have to believe that there is somebody here who knows in their heart that God is trying to get their attention. Someone who this very day is opposing God, who who knows exactly what God wants them to do, but they are intentionally going the other way. God says, do this, they're going to do that. God says, listen to me, they listen to others. God says, repent, they refuse. God says, go, they stay. This idea of opposing God... And they're pushing, running, fighting against God. How many people are in this very room this morning who think in their minds, I am not going to let you win. And Matthew would say, do you know who you are dealing with? The Puritans used to call it the holy hound of heaven. I love that. Like you're running and hear a barking dog behind you, chasing you, chasing you, chasing you. And there's some of you here this morning that this very day may be the day where you say, enough, you win, I give up. You got me. Because it is a sign of God's grace that He continues to pursue you when you are opposing Him. But there's another thing here. Jesus is opposed another way. And I think far more of us struggle with this. He's not opposed only actively. Listen, He's opposed passively. I wonder how many people oppose Jesus politely, quietly. You, you know, a no said with a smile is a no anyway. Or, or we find other ways to say it. My favorite is, well, I'll pray about that. <laughs> a church is filled with sleeper cells of disobedience and rebellion. I wonder how many people think that knowing that Jesus is Lord is the same as living like Jesus is Lord. How many people like the scribes and the Pharisees could tell you exactly where the Messiah was to be born, but won't get up from their seat to go check to see if he's really been born? They're content with knowing that it's going to happen as opposed to seeing if it did happen. They're content with knowing the facts of the scripture without really letting it sink into their hearts. How many people talk miles ahead of where they really live. Say amen to things that they know are true, but realities would tell us that they don't live it out. How many people never leave church, never overly, outwardly rebel, but they just simply have this confession, I just really don't care. How many people year after year after year live in a perpetual state of apathy, the chosen position of rebellion for far too many believers? How many people just want a domesticated, non-invasive Jesus? It's May. It's May. We began the year in January, and some of us said, we're not going to do certain things anymore. We're going to, this year's going to be different in May. And some of you, it's the same old story, and it's May. And the question is, what 
has to happen in order to wake you up out of your spiritual slumber. Enough excuses, enough reasons, enough justifications, enough looking at others and comparing yourself to other people. It's time for you to say, if this is the King of the Jews, then I need to come and worship Him and engage in a heartfelt, deep commitment to know Christ and not be passive anymore. When I was in Togo, we were at a hospital, and I got to do something that I've never done before. I got to scrub in, and don't worry, they wouldn't give me any utensils, but I got to go in and and watch. And I saw amazing amazing things. I saw a C-section. I saw uh, a spleen repaired. And and then while we were in the hospital uh, OR, uh, a nurse came in and said, "Uh, Doctor, there's a a man with his foot in the bag in um, in the waiting room. And all the doctors were like, oh, no. And I was like, what, what's the deal with the foot in the bag? He said, well, you'll see. Yeah, believe me, I did. So as we're walking up to the clinic, before I could see it, I could smell it. What had happened is this guy had been working out in the field, and he had uh, stepped on something and had a little sore on his foot that became infected and then decided not to do anything with, the, with it for about six weeks. And then when he, by the time he came in, his foot was terribly infected, then I got to be in the OR as they, they um, excised the wound and actually amputated part of his foot. And as I'm in the operating room watching this going, How did that happen? <laughs> what, what, what are you doing there? As I'm watching this and I'm, I'm, I asked, How did this happen? And their answer was, all, all that happens, you just got a little cut and you just didn't do anything about it for weeks. And it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And if we wouldn't take care of this, it actually would affect his entire body. He actually could die from this. This could actually be fatal if he didn't take care of it. And I thought, my goodness, that really fits apathy. Get a little thing and you let it go. Weeks and weeks. And that turns into years. And then apathetic Christianity becomes the norm. And then your kids learn. That's what biblical Christianity is. And what was a difficult thing in your life becomes a curse to them. Let's not raise scribes and Pharisees who know where the Messiah is to be born, but won't go six miles to see if he's there. So, so why does Matthew have this here for us? What, what is the point? What is he trying to accomplish? He wants us to know that opposing Jesus actively or passively is treason either way. He wants us to understand that the people who oppose Jesus, like Herod, cannot stop God's work. And people who, who miss the Messiah because of their unwillingness to go and check it out end up worshiping a God of a different kind. You see, at the end of the day, there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are people who oppose Jesus actively or passively, and there are those who worship him. And all of us fit into one of those two categories. So today, you either oppose Jesus actively or passively, or you worship him. There is no other category. The Bible tells us you're either a friend of God or an enemy of God. And Matthew would tell you this. This Savior, Jesus This one who came and the wise men came to worship him. The reason that that is there is for you to know that God's plans are unstoppable. Jesus is king and you better watch out if you think you can oppose a supreme God. You don't know who you're dealing with. Instead, Matthew would call you to be like the wise men. And when you see him, you get on your face and you worship him for who he is. You either oppose him 
or you worship him. There's no other options. So this text is a lot more than just about three kings who are from Orient. This is about the supremacy of God in which people see him and savor him and come and worship him. Father, we um, pray now that you would open our hearts to what you, by your Spirit, want to say to us today. Lord, I believe, I believe, I don't know because you haven't told me, but I, I have to believe that there is somebody here today that the whole reason why they're here is because you want to say to that person, it has to stop today. Enough running, enough pushing, enough kicking, enough being like Herod. But I have to believe that there's some people here who can build great things, all sorts of skill, and they're so good at it that they are running and nobody knows. Lord, I pray today that you would get them. Lord, I pray that you would peel back the apathetic hearts that plague us. Lord, we all feel the pull towards the middle. Help us, God, to not just know the Word, but to love and worship the Savior. Not just to know a truth, but to revel in the beauty of what Christ is. And so, Lord, in the quietness of this moment, we recommit ourselves to, to not having hearts that simply know a truth, but hearts that savor and live and passionately follow you, Jesus. In the quietness of this moment, you may just need to take a moment and Say to the Lord something in regards to this issue of you opposing him or perhaps having an apathetic heart. After we're done, we'll have some folks up here. Our counseling team will be available. They'll be ready to talk with you about anything that you need. They're here just to be able to minister to you. Today could be a defining line in the sand. Don't go one more Lord's Day. Don't, please, please don't go one more Lord's Day. without bending the knee and saying enough. If you're a first-time visitor, we want to remind you of the coffee talk room, a place just to be able to minister to you. Love to be able to meet you there and just to get to know you after the service. And so, Lord Jesus, do your work, we pray, by your Spirit and for your glory, that you might be worshipped and adored like you deserve and for the worth of who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you. Thanks for coming today. God bless you.